This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. So, welcome to the MDT. I'm Ian Wilkinson. And I'm Joe Preston. And this week, we're going to be talking about hydration in older people. Mm. And we're going to have a look at some of the signs and symptoms for hydration mm-hmm. and some of the steps really involved in sort of the physiology of thirst and dehydration. Mm. Linking that to how older adults manage to get dehydrated compared to younger adults yep. in general. Um, And so we're going to talk a little bit through how you might recognise hydration and some of the things that you can do to go about preventing it from occurring. Yeah, and we really just want to emphasise the idea of proactively thinking about dehydration in the older patients in care homes, hospital settings or at home. Mm. So this episode can be applied to either of those settings, can't it? As ever, we have faculty members who are contributing. And this episode, we have Francis Scott, who works for the Academic Health Science Network as an improvement manager. And Claire Watson, who is a practice development nurse at Brighton Hospital. The MDT Podcast. So we have some feedback this week. First of all, congratulations to Joe Middleton, who's running his second journal club using the MDT Podcast package of resources. That's really exciting. And then also Helen Ricketts, who's a physiotherapist up at St. George's, is also planning to, I quote, spice up her journal club, unquote, by using the the podcast as part of that. We've had a guest for the MD teaser, Janet Thomas, who's a physiotherapist, asked, is it a goniometer? Which, unfortunately, it is not, although that is a fantastic word. And we've also created a new hashtag, which is the hashtag MDTIP. And so send to that any resources anything of use that's related to the podcast and then we'll start feeding those in to each individual episode so we've got a couple of things that we thought we'd just highlight from that first is going back to the continents episode is a website called continentsexchange.org.au which is a really really good resource with loads of patient information leaflets and other useful resources on And then the second one, also on the same topic, is the Canadian Nurse Continence Advisors website, which is the cnaca.ca, which is a bit tricky to say. Um, And that's got really, really good resources and PDF documents that you can print out for patients about various different uh, ways of doing pelvic floor exercises, different information leaflets on some of the conditions. Thinking about the feedback section, what we'd really like from you is to start sending us any resources that you've got that you use that you find useful, relevant to the various episodes. And we'll then start feeding those back in on the website. The MDT podcast. As with each episode, we find members of the MDT in our hospitals and we ask them what hydration means to them or what they think of when they think of that thing. I'm a sister on a care of the elderly ward and uh, hydration is very important. We find that uh, a lot of our patients have come in either with dehydration or are becoming dehydrated in our ward. So it is very, very important that we find ways with which to keep them hydrated. Obviously, there is IV fluids, but the best way really is to try to encourage our patients to drink water. They do have teas and coffees, but for us, water is the best way to keep our patients hydrated. We find that it is important because it helps our patients in their well-being. 
It helps also even with them, uh, the medications that we're giving them, they become more effective if our patients are well hydrated. We do have to come up with tricks of the trade uh, that we use for our patients. So things like um, offering water that is actually fresh and it's cool. We have to change our jugs of water probably three, four times per day just to keep it fresh. It gets warm and no one wants to drink warm water. Not really, unless it's a cup of tea. We have to go back and forth to our patients to continue encouraging them. Sometimes we've had to go every hour on the hour to offer them drinks. And sometimes we have to sit there, talk to them. And during the time we're having a discussion, offer them uh, a sip. Because sometimes if you say drink a whole cup, it's a lot to ask for our care of the elderly um, for our patients of this age. I'm one of the GP trainees um, currently working on the orthogeriatric ward so it's my job to make sure that my patients don't become dehydrated whilst they're on the ward particularly patients that are post-op. I usually do this by examining them clinically. Um, I have a look at their fluid charts, I have a look at their medications I look to see whether there's anything um, that could be making them too drowsy and prevent them from drinking or anything that could impair their renal function. I check their bloods to make sure that they're not going into renal failure and I'll instigate any treatment that's needed, whether that's stopping medication, giving them IV fluids. You can hear about the importance of hydration in the community and in hospitals Mm. and how maintaining hydration can be quite difficult and sounds really, straightforward. Yeah, it, it sounds really easy, but it's really quite hard yeah. and requires perseverance and quite inventive methods, really, yeah. to encourage fluid intake. And lots of the practicalities there actually need quite a lot of time to yeah. be spent with the patient. Yeah. I think time's the key thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. There is no quick, easy fix answer no. to this. No. <laughs> and talking of time, we're going to move on and have a think about what hydration is. And Joe, you've been to a dictionary this week, haven't you? I've been to a dictionary. Yes. Because it was, just seemed like the best place to go for yep. this isn't a particularly medical thing. So it's just a condition that results in the body overall having not enough water in it. So it loses more water than it takes in. And that imbalance can also disrupt the levels of salts and sugars that are present in the blood as well, which can then interfere with the way the body functions. Good, yeah. So nice. So for a different dictionary, dictionary definition, definition. It's yeah. pretty good, isn't it? So from a practical point of view, mm-hmm. it's really any time that the body has less fluid than it needs. Yeah. And that can be either because you're not taking enough fluid in or you're losing too much fluid in one form or the other. And in that second circumstance, it tends to be with interconcurrent illness, so in an acute situation where something has changed rather than a chronic issue. It can happen that way, but it's quite unusual. So poor intake is what we're going to focus on today in particular. the assessment of hydration status can Mm. be really hard, as we'll we'll talk about in a minute. And so recognition that something needs to be done Mm. is uh, really the key thing you know that you need to do something about somebody's hydration even perhaps before you've been able to prove that they are dehydrated Mm -hmm. because that's actually quite hard to prove yeah Um, and we know that it's a big issue because there have been a couple of studies in the community and in hospitals and that older adults admitted to hospital were more likely to be dehydrated so they were in the hoop study there were 37 percent of the people admitted Sorry, that's a great name for a study. Hoop study. That's hydration and outcome in older patients, isn't it? Yeah. So 37% of adults um, at presentation were dehydrated and 62% were still dehydrated at 48 hours, showing that recognition is quite poor. And they used serum osmolality as their measurement, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
But the same is true for residents in long-term care and the DRY study, again, a great name, mm-hmm. um, but spelt D-R-I-E. I-E, yeah. That's um, Dehydration Recognition in Our Elders. Ian knows his studies. Yep. Showed that 20% of residents in long-term care were dehydrated, again, by serum osmolality measurement. And references to both of those will be in the show notes. Mm. So we're going to talk about hydration and how to maintain hydration. Mm-hmm. What we're not going to talk about is hydration and nutrition at the end of life yeah. or in the advanced stages of dementia. Yeah, because they're quite specific scenarios. Yeah. What we are going to focus on is hydration in particular, but not nutrition. Um, yeah. But again, if you would like us to do an episode on nutrition, then we'll, we'll happily do that. So let us know. Yeah. So why are people dehydrated? As we said earlier, it's either because you're not taking enough fluid in mm-hmm. or too much out. It's as simple as that. The reasons within that are a bit more complicated, yeah. but if you can keep that thought in your mind it simplifies things a little bit yeah so there are things to think about with poor oral intake so things like difficulty swallowing which may be a chronic problem do they have an illness at the moment which means they're vomiting are they just feeling nauseous they've got a poor appetite um are they able to drink do they they have access to drinks so they're all the things that stop people taking fluid in and then increased losses Things like diarrhea, yeah, uh, being on diuretics, yeah, which are water tablets, which are water tablets, losing blood, <laughs> which is generally an acute situation. Yeah, if you're having a fever, you're sweating a lot, mm-hmm. or you can't thermoregulate and control your temperature. So that particularly happens in sepsis, doesn't it? Yes, and sepsis is also like it gets you twice because it also increases the effectively the length of the tubing that the blood has to circulate through. Mm-hmm. So you need more volume. So you need more volume anyway, and you're losing volume because you're pyrexial. Yeah. And then when you're unwell, what you the amount that you drink may drop as well. Yeah, yeah. As, as we've all been unwell and then not wanting to eat or drink anything, that the same can happen. But it can happen for a couple of particular reasons. I mean, older adults, so particularly if they've got an infection or a delirium for any reason, then that can really knock things sideways and their oral intake can just drop off. And, and go back and listen to our delirium episode if you want to learn a little bit more about that and why that might happen. We'll also talk later on about the steps from being thirsty or being dehydrated or that trigger to actually getting drink. And that's quite complex. And that's where the delirium can can really knock things. But I think it's important to say that there are no robust, reproducible, easy signs Mm. or tests to look for dehydration. There's no single one. No single one. No, You may be able to combine some. Yeah. Yeah. And I think clinical acumen and common sense here are the... The, the vital things yeah. yeah good clinicians do it well but it's not just the clinicians it can be any member of the mdt actually mm. and often it is you know it'll be the, the therapist or the nurses mm. or the pharmacist or someone will come up and say Look, i think this person's getting a bit dehydrated and mm. um, it's not always you know the doctors or the nurses to pick this up so as we've said there's no quick easy test uh, and by that we mean kind of bedside test that you can do to tell you then and there there are Lots of things that can point towards dehydration, though, that by themselves don't necessarily mean that someone's dehydrated, but put together might indicate that yeah. they are. So things like um, malaise, apathy, weakness, yeah. actually, can quite often be because people yeah. are a bit dehydrated. And you can add into that some postural symptoms, so feeling mm-hmm. lightheaded when you stand up or your blood pressure yeah. dropping when they stand up. And if you become really, really dehydrated, then actually your urea, which is uh, one of the waste products in the blood, can build up. And then that has its own symptoms that come with that that can then compound the issue even yeah. further. So that can make you feel a bit nauseous, can make you not feel hungry, can make you sick. Yeah, you often feel uh, so, like properly ill. Yeah, really, so you get really, into really a bit of a cycle there. 
tachycardia, so high high heart rate and low blood pressure. Again, that's usually quite an advanced yeah. state or um, quite an acute situation that that happens. And then people often talk about skin turgor. Mm. Not a fan of it myself. No, that means if you pinch the skin and it doesn't go back. Yeah, as it and I think if quickly. you're in a young person, that's a good sign for high dehydration. But in older people, the the collagen in the skin has changed anyway, mm. and and so they tend to have quite thin. Movable skin yeah. anyway. Um, but dry mucous membranes mm-hmm. and that feeling that the mouth is dry, yeah. I think is quite a Keep it simple yeah. sometimes. Um, um, having darker urine than usual, being constipated because there isn't enough fluid to go into the poo. Yeah. It's all being reabsorbed and saved for the body. And you have to sort of look at these things with the person in front of you and put it all together and, and use sort of some of these things in combination, maybe with some blood tests yeah. to, to think about, you know, whether or not the, the person is dehydrated. Person, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there was a Cochrane review um, fairly recently, actually, wasn't it? Was it just last year? It was, 2015, yeah. yep. Um, and they showed, they kind of looked at individual tests um, and they showed that there were only three tests that showed any individual ability to diagnose dehydration and they compared that to raised serum osmolality, which is your kind of blood test to diagnose dehydration and those tests that were useful were reporting fatigue reporting missing drinks between meals which are fairly obvious aren't they (laughs) and a bia resistance which is something that estimates total body water so that's not really something you're going to be doing regularly so none of them were consistently useful though were they no no none of them were and other things that they found that had some limited diagnostic accuracy were how much they drank (laughs) Urine osmolality and auxiliary moisture. I used to work for a consultant that um, used to measure auxiliary moisture in patients looking for signs of dehydration. Uh And I have to say it was, when he did it, one of the best signs, actually. It was really, really, yeah, really accurate. Sounds a bit weird. Very good. It's very good. So what they didn't look at, though, was combining tests for diagnostic accuracy. Um, But there is some research underway with the dry study we were talking about earlier. The second stage to that is looking at combining some of those tests that might be useful in the future. Yeah. So moving on to some things that aren't useful. So sometimes you might think that someone's dehydrated. So particularly my junior doctors might come back to me and say, oh, yeah, but they've got loads of peripheral edema. They've got loads of swelling in their legs. They can't be dehydrated, which is just not the case. And that's just fluid being in the wrong place. It doesn't Mm. actually give you a guide to how much fluid they've got in their blood vessels, which is really what we're talking about with dehydration. And actually, swollen legs can be for so many different reasons. They could have lymphedema, so it's not actually peripheral edema at all, really. They could have long-standing CCF, where they have chronic edema in their legs. They can have dependent edema. They can have low albumin. So it's not really helpful in no. that way at all. And I think it's a red herring sometimes. And that's just to say that fluid can, as I said, you're to- we're talking about fluid within the blood vessels. Yes. But fluid can leave the blood vessels. And most of the fluid in the body is contained within the cells themselves. Mm-hmm. But also you have fluid around the cells in the extracellular space and you can move fluid between those three different yeah. areas. Yeah. But we're really focusing on fluid within the blood. Yes. Yes. Good. So that moves us swiftly on to blood tests. Funny that. Almost like it's <laughs> planned. <laughs> Um, we just thought we're just going to touch on this quickly because we know that most people aren't going to be ordering and interpreting blood tests. But just to kind of give you a rough idea of, of what doctors are looking for when they order these tests and what some of them mean and how they are and aren't useful. So serum osmolality we've mentioned, and that's how concentrated your blood is. So that will give you an idea of how we're not going to explain osmolality because it's one of those classic things that people I, I, find honestly, difficult. Honestly, you know. it took me. At least eight years to understand it. Yeah, yeah, I think so it does. I think it takes not... a long time. 
Suffice to say, it's a thing. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, a and very high sodium level. Mm. That is, the, I think, the, the one thing that is pretty much it's always due to, to dehydration. Yeah. It's very unlikely to be anything else. It's, yeah. Especially in an older person yeah. that looks, in inverted commas, like they might be dehydrated. Yeah. yeah. Renal function is a blood test we quite often do, and so the sodium comes in as part of that. Mm-hmm. But it's only useful um, in looking at changes compared to their normal values. So if you don't have any normal values for them, it's not particularly useful. It's particularly difficult in older adults because if they have a low muscle mass, then they will have low creatinine anyway. So in the renal function, we're looking at urea and creatinine. So if they're quite thin and they don't have much muscle, that's where creatinine comes from. So their creatinine may be very, very low anyway. And a big rise in their creatinine might actually just put it back into a normal range. Um, so and you may you, not even trigger on your... on your. Yeah, so you have to know what their, their baseline is. <laughs> Similarly, if somebody has chronic kidney disease, their urea and creatinine will be high normally. Yeah. And it's just not reflective of their level of hydration yeah. at all. So again, you yeah. want to look at changes. So yeah. absolute values are not that helpful. So we've talked about um, tests for dehydration and simple things that you might pick up at the bedside. But actually, we're going to talk a little bit later about some tools and some processes that you can put in place to help the routine recognition of dehydration, hydration status for people. In particular, they are looking at building routines to help maintain hydration. So they shouldn't be relied on exclusively and they shouldn't mm. replace just usual care, but they're there to support your usual care. But I think before we do that, yes. we should just have a think about the steps that mm. lead up to thirst and us getting fluids. Yeah, because lots of those processes act on one of these yeah. steps. And so first up... We've called this thirst to drink. Yeah. So you start up by triggering the thirst receptors. Mm-hmm. So that's harder to do in older adults. So your thirst sensation threshold, that's a mouthful, is higher in older adults anyway. So you have to trigger a higher serum osmolality so your blood needs to be more concentrated before you recognise before your brain will trigger that you are indeed dehydrated and need to drink. And that gets compounded by the thirst sensation mm-hmm. that is switched off after a smaller intake of fluid. So you, it takes longer for you to feel that you're thirsty mm-hmm. when you're older and then you start having something to drink and it's more quick for that switch, it off. switch off to happen and so you no longer you've had feel thirsty. When actually yeah. you haven't had it yet. It is more difficult, therefore, to interpret thirst, and particularly in people who have some cognitive impairment, they may not recognise that what they're feeling is thirst. And then once you've thought that you're thirsty, then you've got to sort of cognitively work out what am I going to do about it. Mm -hmm. So you need to have some cognitive function to do that, which is obviously impaired in older patients that have cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. Or if you've got delirium for any particular reason. Um, And then you need to be able to physically act on those thoughts. So if you have them and you say, oh, I'm thirsty now, I need to get up and go make myself a drink. You need to have the mobility to get up and go and seek that drink. You have to know where the kitchen is. You have to know where all the the bits and pieces that you are, which is if you're in hospital, if you're in an unusual environment, are going to be a little bit more difficult for you. And just on a slight aside from there, on our website is also going to be the podcast for the sets course and there's one scenario in that where we're doing simulation in a care home setting when a patient's become delirious and the actor when he does it has this beautiful phrase that he tells everyone when they um they say to him oh would you like a cup of tea And, and he's quite agitated in the home and then he then settles down and says well i would but 
you don't know where the things are, do you? You have to go into the kitchen, and then on the left, there's a cupboard, and in the cupboard, you'll find the tea bags, and on the right is the sugar, and, and he just does this brilliant sort of map out of the kitchen in the scenario. But anyway, um, head on down and, and have a look at those podcasts when, when they come online. And then finally, you have to have access to fluids. So you have to have the drinks nearby, you have to have a working tap, you have to have some clean water, yep. some drinks that you like drinking around. We did a audit with a medical student when I was a registrar mm. a few years ago, and she audited the distance from patients to their drinks and showed that it was often much further than the mm. length of the patient's arm. And she then put an intervention in of just going around the ward and saying that she was going to be measuring distances that day and dramatically reduced the distance from patients to their drinks. Exactly. All these things are just small, small, things. small, small yeah. steps you need to take and, and build on a quality structure with hydration at its core rather than relying on lots of different assessment methods or tools or, yeah, tick, or boxes. tick boxes. Yeah. Um, and one key thing that came up from one of the things we were reading for this, which is the reliance on a carer tool, um, which won British Nursing Journal Award. Uh, for a nutrition nurse called Naomi Campbell, which is a great name. And it's a separation in that of saying, do they need physical assistance to drink or do they just need encouragement to drink? So recognise it. Is is it that they're physically unable to drink without someone being there or do they forget and they don't trigger and they don't go down that process? And obviously the way you manage those two things are slightly different. Yeah. If someone needs encouragement, mm. then it's, it's literally just doing that. Every time somebody goes past... Would you like a cup of tea? Or yeah. even rephrasing it. Yeah. I'm making a cup of tea. Do you fancy one? Yeah. Um, which may sometimes work a bit better. So the reliance on a carer tool is not something that I think is nationally being used yet. Um, but it's being used in lots of different places and it's quite nice. It's a kind of traffic light trigger system mm. for, for how much help people are needing and then gives you a kind of action plan to to work with from there as well. So it's, I quite like that. It's quite nice. Yeah. There's a nice study looking at how how people drink and found that people were more likely to take drinks from a drinks trolley rather than if you just leave it next to them. So you might actually just... And that's kind of making things a little bit more normal, mm. isn't it? So you might actually increase the time number of times that you offer people drinks um, with a trolley service because you don't tend to sit at home with a jug of water next to you. So it kind of makes it a little bit more normal. And then as you were saying, yeah, phrasing of offers and, and instead of saying... Or would you like a drink? Say, I'm going to make a cup of tea. Do you want one? Or I've made one. Do you want to have it? And and that seems to increase the the amount that people will drink. And then picking up from what I said earlier, there was other people who have done a similar thing looking at surgical inpatients. And Mm. they showed that 42% of patients didn't have a water jug within reach. And 30% of patients found that actually the act of pouring the water from the jug into the glass was really difficult or impossible. So it just shows that, you know, we have to help our patients do this. Um, and it's it's about embedding the process yeah. into you know everything that we do. And there, there are quite a few good um, ideas that we've heard of that have not been published anywhere. Things like uh, you know you have the red trays in hospital, having red top jugs instead yep, to, kind to of highlight, highlight patients who need help. Yeah, or, one that I really like is just jugs that have lids that don't fall off. Yes, which I don't know about the community so much, but in hospital it's like. Well, they don't pour. Is the other thing. <laughs> They're like a dexterity like, it's, test it's like in themselves. Shut. You can't flip the front. It's just, it's just shut, and so yeah. you're just trying to pour water out of a jug yeah, with a lid like, on it. Doesn't so, work. All kinds of crazy nonsense. Yeah. Uh, one of the other parts of this is the hydrate program, mm-hmm. which is a program incorporating a whole number of different things, yeah. and one of which is the eight drinks rounds per day, hence mm-hmm. hydrate, yeah. and then certain triggers to sort of open up an enhanced 
care bundle really for yeah. some at-risk patients. They use the reliance on a care care yeah. tool as well. And that's been used throughout KSS, where we are, but also in other areas of the country. And it's been taken up by lots of care homes, but also similar programmes in acute care hospitals as well. So that's that's something seeming to be working quite well. You came across this really interesting thing, uh, which sounds really straightforward, but the drinks diary thing. Yes. So it was a small study, um, I have to caveat that, <laughs> um, on 22 patients. And they looked at the patient's self-reported fluid intake mm. and the fluid charts. And they showed that for those patients, they were the same. So if you ask the patient, how much have you had to drink? Their answer was true. Now, of those 22 patients, a small number of them had relatively mild cognitive impairment. Mm. So you'd want to do, do a, a little bit study, more work. But, yeah. but I, I think there's something in that. I quite liked know. it. Uh, initially, when Ian told me that, I was like, <coughs> what's your point? Like, they're filling in the charts accurately. But it kind of goes back to that thing that you can't just be relying on it's not a tick box things. Thing. Yeah. And, and actually, you can just ask someone, they'll tell yeah. you. Like, we don't need to overcomplicate this with lots of different things. We just need to be proactively addressing yeah. things. So hydration is affected by a whole host of things. Mm. Delirium, infections, they can cause a decompensation. So you can be just about drinking enough to maintain your hydration and then something else happens and maybe you only lose one or two cups a day. And actually that makes a huge impact, makes a big difference and causes decompensation. And then that may also affect your ability to swallow and then yeah. that may compound it yeah. further by making you your oral intake end up difficult. In spiral and you down, this, don't you? Spiral, yeah. So just finally towards the end, um, because mainly what we've been talking about is preventing and recognition of dehydration, is we thought we'd talk very briefly about the specific rehydration management once it has occurred, mm. just to round things off at the end. So obviously the, the most sensible thing and, and in all conditions is to treat any reversible or acute causes that there are. So if someone has an infection that's causing all of those things that Ian was just talking about, um, then treating the infection whilst you're supporting their fluid intake. Um, trying to increase their fluid requirement orally if you can um, or treating any delirium that might be causing them to decompensate at the moment. Yep. If someone is dehydrated one of the things to think about is it's not always just water that you've lost Mm -hmm. especially if you're losing fluid you may well be losing some salts as well and so oral rehydration salts may be an option in early or mild stages Mm. especially if someone's vomiting or they've had diarrhea Um, and and they they work by if when you correct the salt and sugar balance then that automatically help your your body relies on the salt and sugar content to regulate the water content so that's why they work so in in the mild and early stages those are quite a good preventative measure aren't they yeah especially in the community we don't use them at all in hospital i don't don't really know why because actually it's probably probably really sensible Then medication reviews? Yeah. So if someone's dehydrated, don't give them medications that are going to make them more dehydrated. So water tablets, water tablets. are probably something you can hold yes. off even just of, for a few days. A lot of the antihypertensive work through the renin angiotensin system and one way or the other make you lose fluid. Mm-hmm. Also, on a simple level, you've got less volume in your body, so you don't want to be lowering your blood pressure any further. Yeah. Probably at that point, again, is time when you might just want to stop your blood pressure medicines for a few days until you've got a good blood volume in, in you again. And blood pressure medications, we all get very worried about, people often get very worried about them, but mm. they're there to prevent your mortality from cardiovascular term. things over the long term. Missing two or three days isn't going to make a difference. Yes. 
looking at any medication that might be making things worse at the moment so that they're on any sedatives that actually that's why they're not having a good oral intake at the moment and obviously in the acute situation if they're vomiting or have diarrhea can you give them some medicine to stop them vomiting or having diarrhea yeah keep it simple and then you may need to supplement the oral intake it may not be enough you may need to give them some additional fluids Mm -hmm. and you can do that either subcutaneously so just by putting a needle under the skin and giving fluids and you can give about one and a half litres over 24 hours mm-hmm. per injection site. Mm. Um, and that's something that we sometimes do in hospital. And I think some places do it in the community, but it's, it's do, less, less, yeah. less common. All the fluids can be given intravenously. But usually that means that someone would have to move to an acute hospital. Not always. And again, it depends what you have locally. Um, so that is... That's that's a step up then, isn't yeah. it? It's a real change in environments. So it's something if you can prevent that from happening, then then that's the ideal. And I think that that sort of wraps up what yeah. we wanted to talk about with hydration. We've talked about some of the signs and symptoms that you get as somebody mm-hmm. becomes dehydrated. We've talked about some of the physiology as to why older people don't feel thirst in quite the same way as younger people, and the steps that you need to take to act on your thirst. So we've talked about some strategies that you can implement and have been successful um, so far in improving hydration in a proactive manner and also about what to do if, if someone is needing additional hydration acutely. And so if you've got any resources that you know of or that you use around hydration or if you've been using the infographic in any of your departmental teaching sessions or displaying them on your ward, mm-hmm. or if you've got anything that you want to say to us about <laughs> hydration, then please or drop life. us a line. <laughs> or life, generally, yeah. Then drop us a line. And we are at MDT underscore podcast on Twitter. On Facebook, we are just MDT podcast, no spaces. And our website is www.thehearingapodcast.org.uk. The MDT Podcast. So now it's time for the MD teaser. Mm-hmm. The catchily titled MDT item guessing game, where we will read a series of increasingly more simple clues mm-hmm. about an item that a member of our MDT might use. Yes. And I think it is your go to go first, Joe. It is. So, for your first clue, Ian, mm-hmm. the name of this item is related to a skin condition, but it's not for a skin condition. I don't know. Okay. Second clue, it's an organisational aid. Is it a diary? It is not. I don't know how that relates to skin condition, but that would be very topical for any of you that know me. (laughs) Yes, that that is very true. Okay, third clue, it helps a person to maintain their own independence. But it sounds like a skin condition. Mm -hmm. And what was the second clue again, sorry? The second clue was it helps with organisation. Organisation. Independence, organisation. Is it a pill pot? I I don't know the name that you're looking for, but a a tablet reminder. Close. Think of skin conditions. Dosset box. That famous skin condition called Dosset box. Yes. A blister pack? A blister pack, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you that one because you were pretty close. I don't think I can continue with clues there. No, no. Brilliant. Cool. That's not too bad. So how many was that? That was three clues? Three. Well, three. Okay. three. Depends. If it's a draw, then I think I win. But okay. let's see how we go. Well, let's see how we go. Right, so clues for you, Joe. Okay, Dicks. First of all, is this item needs a therapy review to get it right? 
Is it a walking stick? You need the right height. It's not. But it could be. But it could be. Secondly, is it small but mighty? <laughs> um, don't know. Okay. Third one is you can have one, mm-hmm. two, or four, but never three. Sorry, I'm going to change that. Okay. You're going to. You normally you'd have one, two, or four, but I've just thought of a situation you could have three. I've no idea. Okay. Next clue, so your fourth clue, is you can have a choice. It could be made of metal or rubber. One is better than the other. Metal or rubber? No, I can't think. Okay. I'm going to change my fifth clue to make it a bit easier for you, (laughs) because I'm conscious those four have been quite hard. Uh, So the fifth clue is this goes with a walking aid. Is it a feral? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So because three could be a three tripod, ones are usually they're usually three wheelers, aren't they? Rather than well, the yes. But then I thought actually you can get a tripod stick. Yeah, it's got could. three feet yeah. on the stick. Yeah. yeah. Okay. In my mind, I was a little bit close there, but you were very close. Didn't, yeah. You know, get the words out. And now. <laughs> <It doesn't count>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it doesn't count if you don't see it. And now we have a clue for you. Yes. And the prize is the much-coveted MDT mug. There are only two in existence outside of our offices. <laughs> okay, so the third clue is it is round, it is straight, but it can also be bent. Good clue, I think. I like that clue. Yeah, I like that clue. Yeah. So let us know what you think using the hashtag MDTeaser on Twitter or on Facebook or email us at our website, thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. And the MDT will reconvene in two weeks. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT podcast is a hearing aid podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.